action. Welcome to Torn Stubs, with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And author. Yeah, and author now, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> to celebrate the release of Josh's new book, The Shadow Glass, out on March 22nd from Titan Books, we are deep diving into the best of 1980s fantasy and sci-fi, and seeing what got Joshua's creative juices bubbling. Oh, Joshua, sounds insidious. tell us about... The Shadow Glass. The Shadow Glass is about Jack Corman, who is a 30-something non-starter who is sort of directionless and drifting and has been for a while. In 1986, his father, Bob Corman, made a puppet fantasy film called The Shadow Glass, which flopped on release. It turned Bob into a recluse and it destroyed the relationship between father and son. In present day, when Bob dies... Jack returns home to clear out the house and during a thunderstorm, the puppets from the movie start talking. They drag Jack into a desperate quest through London that forces him to navigate the labyrinth of his father's legacy while also coming to terms with his feelings about his father. So when did you start writing this? I started writing it in November 2019. Um, It was my NaNoWriMo project. What's NaNoWriMo? NaNoWriMo is... (laughs) (laughs) is a national novel writing month and it's basically a program that is completely free you can do it wherever in the world you are and you sign up to um to do a a writing project of your own choosing and i'd done it previously and found it quite a good way of sort of really focusing my mind and you have one month to write as many words as you can how many words do you usually write a day um i would aim for around a thousand just over a thousand words a day um and my total goal was fifty thousand words a thousand words what's that two pages on pages or words um if you're double spaced sort of times new roman point 12 that's about three or four pages i think the average book is fifty thousand words the average book is somewhere between seventy and 80,000. So I knew I wouldn't finish a full first draft, but I wanted to like really break the back of it and try to get that 50K in the bag so that I could sort of then hopefully finish it quite quickly. And it went really well. Like it was, it was tough, but I'd spent um, the few months preceding it planning like crazy. Like I think I started planning it in maybe the April before the November And I sort of built the world, I built the characters, I just really fleshed out um, what I was going to do. I had a very rough chapter outline, and um, so when I sat down to actually write it... Chapter by chapter? Yeah, pretty much just chapter by chapter. So when I sat down to write it, I had a very clear um, sort of path to follow, basically, and it was just about getting words down. And of course, that plan changed massively, and I sort of ripped the book in half afterwards and completely changed a lot of it. But it really helped me to to kind of tell myself the story in that month to kind of try to get to grips with it, basically. I've heard Robert Harris, the writer of Fatherland and The Ghost mm. and The Fear Index, that he believes there's not a great deal of difference between writing fiction and nonfiction. When you're writing nonfiction, you are retelling what's already happened and when you write fiction you've got to do the same you've already got to know pretty much everything and you just find a way of writing it down oh that's interesting 
Yeah, I think, I guess he sounds like a planner. Like I, I kind of plan to a degree, but a lot of the sort of good stuff you, I find I often just sort of discover it while writing. So you'll suddenly write down a line that kind of inspires a, an idea that sparks off something else that you might try instead. And um, I'm very much like a, like a, I think we may have talked about this before, the M. Night Shyamalan approach, which is um, not to make a series of bad films, but to um, to kind of have a vomit draft, which is the very first draft where it's like, just get something on the page and then at least you have something to work with. And that's kind of my approach, I think, is don't make it good, just make it finished and then you can work on it afterwards. What was the spark for The Shadow Glass? When did you have the idea and what what lit that fire? What was the moment? Um, I remember wanting to write about puppets and having a very strong image of puppets being in an attic and at the time it was um i was calling it space gods and it wasn't anything i hadn't written it down anywhere i think maybe i had written down the title space gods but i kind of was envisioning it as more of a sci-fi kind of thing but i just knew i wanted to write about puppets because i just love all of those 80s great fantasy films that used puppets and um so that's kind of that was the kick the kind of jumping off point but i didn't have a story for it yet and um it was it was probably around the april time of 2019 when i was walking to uh sainsbury's i think other shops are available uh with my boyfriend and i just st- suddenly just started talking about this idea that i had about a filmmaker whose film flopped and his it kind of ruined the, his relationship with his son and then his son has to deal with all of this um emotion and sort of like the fallout of somebody dying when you haven't actually reconciled um and the puppets just seem like a perfect way of doing that in sort of like a fun non sort of you know really heavy deep kind of boring way um so it was almost like you had two separate ideas that you went oh mm. now i have the perfect story for mm. this concept yeah exactly with. yeah i suddenly had the characters and I went home and I just immediately started throwing around ideas on, on the page. I had a book, um, like a notebook that I just started doodling in and like the characters' names changed and the, the sort of order of events changed. But that core idea of the father-son relationship never changed. And I think that the other thing that was going on at that time was I was kind of watching my own father sort of... Um, going through the process of his second wife dying basically uh, of yeah. cancer in like really quite sort of shockingly similar circumstances to how his first wife and my mum died and so mm-hmm. I, I kind of had this idea of wanting to write about fathers and sons um, and that fed into it massively because you've mentioned this before I mean not to give any spoilers away about any of your other projects that mm. you've mentioned to me but you have in, in the wake of your mum dying back in 2004 Mm. so probably mid 2005 you and your dad went on a road trip in america you've often spoken about wanting to write a story either based on that or actually that so this idea of you writing about fathers and sons seems to have been in the back of your mind for the better part of almost 20 years i'd actually completely forgotten about that Yeah, that was the story where happy, I wrote the I'm first I'm happy chapter. to remind you. Yeah, thank you very much. I'm going <laughs> to keep note of that for future interviews and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I think ideas often do just kind of lodge in your brain and they clearly you can forget about them and then they just pop up unexpectedly and, 
um, and you can use them elsewhere, I think. With The Shadow Glass, this is, for all intents and purposes, it's your first book aimed at adults. Your previous books, The Sentinel Trilogy, Vicious Rumour, mm. they are aimed at the YA, young, young adult audience. Was it a conscious decision from the get-go to write something for adults or is this something that became apparent when you were writing it thinking this is going down a darker path that is acceptable for kids um i did struggle with if shadow glass was you know ya or adult and like the general rule of thumb is if the main character is adult it's an adult book you know if the main character is is a teenager sort of maybe 20 minus 20 kind of area um it's young adult and um that kind of has always just completely bamboozled me because I never wrote any of my books previously. It might have just been naive of me, but I didn't write any of them thinking this is YA. And I hadn't actually even heard the term YA until like a decade ago when I wrote the first Sentinel book and my cousin read it and said, oh yeah, it's kind of like a YA dark fantasy. And I was like, what are you talking about? You, you wrote it longer than a decade ago. You were writing it when we met almost 20 years ago. It That's only true, just got yeah. published. 10 years ago yeah do you think you were writing in like a lot of things around that time suddenly the harry potter format became such a crossover it was written for the ya but it seemed to have this universal crossover where suddenly adults were reading it as well so much so that there are uh, covers for kids and then there's yeah. the adult covers yeah so they don't have to walk around holding kids books yeah do you think that that tied into how you viewed the Sentinel, where you thought, well, hang on, how can it be for kids? I'm just writing it like a Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, I think Harry Potter was basically the benchmark. It kind of created YA. It's the same way that Steven Spielberg created the blockbuster with Jaws kind of unwittingly. I think Harry Potter mm. did that, you know, definitely made YA a thing. Um, but I just, I've never really understood the kind of like separating books by age i can understand it if it's for you know young kids you know picture books and stuff like yeah. that and very very adult books um like stephen king's stuff but i just never really understood the age thing because i've always read outside of my own age group and i think a lot of people do that as well so yeah i think that actually maybe in film it's, it's more of a thing in film where I was always really surprised when people called labyrinth the children's film because yes i enjoyed it as a child but um, I also, I think I love it even more as an adult and not necessarily for just a nostalgic sake, but because I think that there's so much in it for, for adults as well. So I've never really understood the age thing. And I, I kind of, that's why when I was writing Shadow Glass, I was like, I didn't really think of it as if it was adult or YA. But then when I landed my agent, she said, you know, this is your adult debut. And I was like, okay, if that's how we're going to sell it, that's how we're going to sell it. Which sounds... Not as dirty as it sounds. <laughs> it's my adult debut. <laughs> Coming soon to OnlyFans, the shadow glass. <laughs> yeah. Things get weird. Was it kind of freeing writing a character that's closer to your age? Um, I think it's, I think, yeah, I could absolutely relate with Jack massively. Um, and I think I've noticed that as I've gotten older, my characters, my main characters have also gotten older as well. Yeah, Vicious Rumour is older than... Yeah. What's the kid in Sentinel? Nicholas. Nicholas. So Vicious yeah. Rumour. Rumour is older by about at least five or, six five years. or seven years. And that's yeah. an important five or seven years. Because yeah. you go from age 10 to 
early adult. And I only aged her down because I was try- I was r- struggling with this kind of like YA rule of having teenagers. And originally she was sort of like 23, 24, which was around, I was a bit older than that, but it was very much within my grasp that age. But then when people are kind of going, oh, you write YA, I was like, oh, maybe I should make her 19 then to kind of fit into the YA bracket. So I've always really struggled with that kind of thing. And it's quite, yeah, it's quite nice to be able to just write about 30 year olds in kind of like weird, nostalgic fantasy stories and feel like there might be an audience for it. You know, if I love this kind of stuff, surely other people my age and older also love it. Yeah, I mean, I can only talk for people my age and, and your age, but I'm watching the films now still that I was watching as a kid, mm. and I see things in a completely different way now. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, like, just watch Mrs. Doubtfire. There's so many things in there <laughs> that are really close to the bone, sort of comedically. And um, as a kid, they just they go over your head. But as a, an older person, you kind of go, oh, my God, I can't believe I didn't pick up on that as a kid. But it still worked. It works as a kid's film and a grown-ups film. Yeah, 100%. And, and you know, and that was before Toy Story. Toy Story is mm. always credited as it was the first film for adults and kids. Mm. No. It really wasn't. No. Yeah. Henson was doing this. 10 years before yeah. and we're going to we're going to get onto labyrinth in a couple of weeks time but this week we are going to kickstart this series with the terminator james cameron's sci-fi classic it is 2029 and the machines have risen up against the human race and all but wiped them out in a nuclear holocaust on what is known as judgment day A limited number of human resistance fighters led by the messianic figure john connor catch word that their enemies have sent a cyborg back in time to 1984 to kill Sarah, John's mother, before he is even conceived. (laughs) The Resistance send back one of their own, Kyle Reese, to protect Sarah and ensure the survival of the human race. As far as concepts go, this is pretty fucking solid. This concept is sort of perfect. It's such a great idea. It's done with such sort of style and economy uh yeah for me this is just one of those perfect films mostly i would say um it's like the reason it's not perfect is because t2 came afterwards and i think that is actually perhaps better <laughs> i would agree yeah, yeah i would absolutely agree and you don't actually have to have seen the terminator the original no. 1984 film in order to see terminator 2 i had i saw terminator 2 on a pirate video <laughs> probably when it was still in the cinema in 1991. I was way too young to see it, but like I've mentioned on other episodes, I've never been censored by my parents. No. They, they've never not shown me or let me watch anything. Yeah. So yeah. I've had free reign to watch whatever I want, and it's only done me the world <laughs> of good. But for years, for years, I had never seen the first one. Yeah, same. And I can still, I can still understand what's going on in T2 because James Cameron makes his sequels so you don't have to have seen the first one yeah I Terminator 2 kick-started my um my long tradition of watching the sequel first which happened with Empire Strikes Back and it happened <laughs> with Scream 2 and Terminator 2 was a video that I found in um in our like video cupboard and it was something dad had taped off TV and he'd put a label on it. All it said was Terminator. And I just turned it on, thought that, well, oh, that's a great film. And then it was only later, because this is pre-internet, 
it's only later I discovered it was actually a sequel and there was this other film that, that was there before. <laughs> and it's kind of funny watching it back to front because T2 is so... Well, T2 is like the T-1000. It's like really cool. It's very modern for the time, you know, very efficient. Um, and then you go back to the Terminator and it's just very 80s. And the difference in style between the 80s and, and 90s is actually enormous. And, you know, not just sort of the big hair, but like the tie-dye, the music, just the way that people behaved um, was just so different. But it was only a mere seven years between yeah. the two films. Yeah, crazy. Literally seven years. And I worked that out yesterday when I was watching it. I was like, that can't be right. It seems so much longer. Yeah. Because James Cameron developed as a filmmaker. It's a completely different genre. Terminator 2 is an action thriller. Slash this, comedy. There are comedic moments. Mm. Now I know why you cry. Uh, <laughs> that's not the funny bit. That's the sad bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I laugh always. Um, but this is a horror this, I was going to say to you, do you think this is kind of a slasher film? I think it is, yeah. This is a slasher film where we are following not the people being killed, but the monster. Yeah. If we were following Mrs. Voorhees yeah. in Friday the 13th, then we would we would associate ourselves with her. We would maybe empathize or, or maybe not empathize, but fully understand her mission or her reasoning. Mm. It wouldn't be such a, a mystery. Yeah. Here... The mystery is kind of the cat and mouse chase. Who's going to win? Mm-hmm. Not why is this happening? We know why it's happening. We we basically told in the opening credits. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Well, it's quite telling that the film, the biggest film that inspired James Cameron, there's lots of them, but the biggest one that inspired the Terminator was Halloween because he saw that John Carpenter had um, made this enormously successful horror film on a tiny budget. And so James Cameron said, oh, well, I'm going to make a big, enormous, successful film on a small budget as well then. And he did. And you can see the, what he was going for, because like the first version of the script, I think he wrote, was very much a horror film. And his agent said, oh, no, don't do that. And then he fired the agent. Hmm. But the, the kind of the imprints of horror remain on the film because that idea of this unstoppable force moving through L.A., I think it is, killing women... Um, like really brutally um, and sort of quite mysteriously if you hadn't read the opening text. <laughs> it's, it's pure <laughs> horror movie. You know, it's like Sarah is living in a horror film because she suddenly hears about women sharing her name who have been killed. She's the final mm. girl in this. Do you think the opening credit exposition is needed? Do you know what? I can't remember what it said. It basically just I says like 2029, 20, the machines have risen, yada, 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 sent back something for the human race. It kind of explains what's yeah. happening. But then later on, Kyle Reese does exactly the same. And I just feel that it almost buries the lead a little bit. And I, I wonder if that was mm. a note from the studio or from the producers after the film had been cut saying, maybe we should put something up top so people aren't confused about what's going on. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if they did that. Um, and actually, I didn't. I can't remember how I felt the first time I saw it. And obviously I'd seen T2 first, so I knew the general concept, but... Do you remember when you first saw it? Because I remember when I first saw it. It must have been... It must have been on, on VHS at some point. Mm. Yeah. That's when I got it. Um, I bought the VHS and then shortly after the DVD because a brand new edition of... The ultimate edition of T2 came out in a tin box. Which I, I have still that. Have. I still yeah. have it. It's got the extended 
dented to fuck <laughs> from so many moves. I don't know if mine's dented to be honest, but I like those tin boxes. I've got that and I've got Battle Royale. Mm. I paid thirty pounds for that Battle Royale one. I would never do that nowadays. What the fuck was so wrong frivolous? With me? What the fuck was wrong with me? But <laughs> you were young and carefree. I had it on VHS, and it almost felt like it was filling in some blanks, but blanks I didn't know existed. Mm. Because now I understood why Sarah Connor was the way she was in the second film. Yeah. Yeah, because when I, I think, because when I first saw the the first one for the first time, <laughs> um, I was really surprised at how different she was. You know, she looks like a regular you know, person. any other waitress in LA. She just mm. looks sort of like big poofy hair, sort of wants to go out and have fun with her, you know, her flatmate. Ginger. Ginger. Her name is Ginger. Oh, I thought you were saying that Sarah Connor was Ginger. No. no she was about 27 different shades of brown and blonde. <laughs> <laughs> she was brilliant. Um, yeah, I think the text probably is needed purely because the first is 30 minutes before the Terminator, the T-800, finds Sarah in the club. Mm. And then it's 45 minutes until Sarah says, why me, mm. to Kyle Reese. And that's, you know, we've only got less than an hour left after that. So it's pretty much halfway through that we actually get our main character, as far as we know, asking questions about what the hell is actually going on. But isn't that, isn't that great? Isn't that a way to keep mm. the audience guessing and in, in, involved? I never want to be ahead of yeah. the film. Yeah, definitely. Because you've seen what the T-800 is capable of and you're just like, what is... Oh, I guess you know it's a cyborg, but... You don't really know why he's doing anything. But we, do, we don't know everything about him because it's mm. not until a long way in that he does his own surgery, takes his eye out in the mirror yeah. with the scalpel and the blood and this, that and the other. We know that he's tough. We know that he survived a bit of a stabbing at the start of the film. And it's quite brutal mm. for the thugs just to stab him. That escalated. That escalated. Quickly. Yeah, it really did. What I like about it is... It's, I love Bill Pullman's tired, yeah. tired thing on his face, <laughs> and um, they just coloured. They just basically like a cartoon character coloured one of his teeth in black to make it look like he'd lost it. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't working for me. Um, what I like is they haven't done the usual sci-fi thing of everything being all utopia in the present day, yeah. and then the future will be everything turned to shit. LA here is just as violent and seemingly just as mm. gritty and shit as the future. Only difference is the machines haven't yet taken control. Wasn't the future more usually portrayed as a utopia? Like, no, we're talking about like is, Logan's is run. The, the contrast. So usually you have one and then yeah. the other. So here, okay. here you would, because the future is so fucked up because the machines have risen, mm. you would expect the contrast to be that we live in a complete utopia. Yeah. Yeah, Demolition Man did it the other way around. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Murder, death, kill. And twenty twenty nine suddenly is not that far away at all. I which was is thinking really that scary. just before we started recording. I was thinking that's less than eight years away. Yeah. <laughs> but Terminator Two moves it back to twenty fifty, doesn't it? Doesn't it change Judgment Day hmm. to a different date? Because it... she says well, we averted it, and then but it's inescapable. Well, it gets murky because everything's been reset so much yeah. like in the early scenes here i had to keep pushing images of terminator genesis out of my head <laughs> do you know what we call that in total film when it came out in like when it wherever it was 
um, recalled the film to Minotaur Genesis because <laughs> G- G- Genesis spelt with S-Y-S made no sense. So everyone just calls it to Minotaur Genesis. <laughs> I just always think of Phil Collins. Phil Collins. Oh, Genesis. That's Genesis. a great album. Well, he could be the new Terminator. <laughs> What's more scary than being that chased be by Phil Collins? Hello. Is that his song? I can't remember. Nope, that's Lionel Richie. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you never watched VH1 as a kid, did you? <laughs> no. There's barely any dialogue for the first 15, 20 minutes of this film. Mm. Yeah, it's it, the only real dialogue is Sarah. Well, you no, know, like even before we actually meet Sarah, we've got Arnie arriving, then we've got Sarah Connor. Sarah Connor. I need your clothes. Then we've got Kyle Reese arriving. Then we've got all the business where he stole my trousers. And then he's being chased by the cops. And then he puts those awesome trainers on. And I have a pair. They are Nike Vandals. <laughs> um, then my gym shoes. Oh, is that why you have a pair of trainers like that? Yeah, they were re-released by Nike around the time that Terminator Genesis or whatever you call it, Tomato Gin Gin, whatever you call it, um, <laughs> came out. So my mate bought me a pair. They're not cheap. They were like 80 quid. I've seen them. I've seen you wearing them. I had no idea that's the reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I just love them. They're yeah. such a great, they're, they're cool. the comfiest trainers I've ever had, but they're just a bit worse for wear now. So I wear them in the gym because they, they do give me oh, okay. genuinely, genuine ankle support because I am pushing 40. <laughs> I need to be careful. <laughs> if anything snaps, that's it. That's me out of action until I'm 55. <laughs> you can never take them off ever again. You can never take them off. No, but like a cowboy, they would just sort of form to my feet. Down with my boots on. <laughs> Who says that? Is that from... Uh, isn't, that, isn't that a Insta, Clint Eastwood one? Oh, I thought it was from um, The Hateful Eight. But if it is, it's probably stolen. Oh, maybe it is. But there's very little dialogue. And this is an English language American movie. You would expect something mm. like this from the French New Wave or from <laughs> Tokyo Cinema. It's, it's unusual for a, a what is, for all intents and purposes, an action film a big budget yeah. action film reasonably big budget to feature almost no dialogue in its first 20 minutes yeah but james cameron is such a great visual storyteller mm. i think that's one of the things that he really is good at um and like the the dialogue for for sarah and her friends and stuff that was written by it wasn't written by him it was sort of no, is it Gail Ann Hurd? Or her teenage daughter, if I remember. Something like that. I think she showed it. Yeah. Gail Ann Hurd, co-writer or co-story developer and producer, showed it to her neighbour or her own kids and be like, do uh, kids talk like this? Do young people talk like this? I mean, James Cameron wasn't that yeah. old when he made this. Late 20s, maybe? No. He's 66 now. This is almost 40 years He's 63 years ago. now. He's 66. I oh, know he... Okay. I think he's sixty. He's mid sixties, so yeah. You know, he's he decided that um, he wanted to do all his adventure stuff, like going on deep sea dives. And he thought, right, I'll do it now while I'm young, as in just after Titanic, and then I'll get back to filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So he's clearly coming back to filmmaking because he's doing three Avatars back to back to back. Oh my god! I figured out he's going to be seventy three by the time the final Avatar film is is released in twenty twenty eight. That's crazy. But Ridley Scott is 83 and he's still making movies. Yeah, he is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is. Yeah, he's still making films. But I think the thing that Cameron is just so good at 
is his is the world building and he does a lot of it visually yes he does it in this obviously he does it in avatar he does it in even in true lies he builds it all visually he shows you different worlds that people live in oh even titanic and yeah even in titanic it, he shows you the different worlds yeah he's like he's really good at detail specific details about a world that just bring it to life and he just lets you exist in the world he's like his own art director isn't he yeah he's insane he's brilliant do you think that his obsession with special effects technology is a good or a bad thing? I think it's I think it's good, right? He is clearly the sort of filmmaker who needs to make films with the technology available because otherwise how is he going to realize it? And he's able to command mm. the budget needed. Cut to John Carpenter who has a similar mind, but he's never been able to get the budget to match the vision. But the thing about mm. James Cameron is it's story first. It's not special effects first. It's always yeah, story, exactly. story, story. It's not mm-hmm. It's not spectacle for the sake of spectacle. It's not, you know, if, if he ever made a Marvel film, it would be such a vastly different experience. Mm. Because he's Because he wouldn't Cameron. have the big thing crashing from the sky at the end. He but would if he did, slightly... if he did have that, there would be a reason for it and the reasoning would be watertight. James Cameron's never yeah. made a terrible movie. Even Titanic, no. which is, in a weird way, it's his most grounded film. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a drama mm. with sort of um, apocalyptic kind of disaster in it, I guess. Yeah, but he's never made a terrible film and he's only made seven. I know, I was looking at his, um, his list because he's obviously produced a lot. Yeah. But if you think about how many films he's actually made, it's, it's tiny compared to a lot of his contemporaries. 100% was from, he did Piranha 2, but he was kicked off of Piranha 2, right? So yeah. in a weird way, The Terminator, for all intents and purposes, can be considered his debut. He was a hired, Absolutely. hired gun on the other one, on Piranha 2, didn't actually finish yeah. it had a bad experience, went out on his own. But that bad experience gave him the, um, the like, apocalyptic dream that he had about the um, metallic kind yeah, of Yeah, he was ill, wasn't he? And he had his fever Yeah, dream. Yeah, in Rome, I think he was so, working on the film. Piranha 2, Terminator, Aliens, Abyss, Terminator 2, True Lies, Titanic and avatar. avatar okay so if we're taking piranha 2 away it is seven mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and then it will be up at uh 10 by the time he's finished with the avatar he's like the quentin films. tarantino of sci-fi <laughs> yeah i mean you could just say working that. steadily just doing what he wants and it's great because actually i think all of his films maybe with the possible exception of the abyss have really sort of hit a zeitgeist and hit a moment where people are obsessed. I remember when Titanic came out and people were going to see it 50 times. You know, they were completely obsessed with it. And ditto with Avatar. People, There's like people who are really upset they can never go to Pandora. They're genuinely upset about it. Well, I actually don't, I don't particularly like Avatar. I wouldn't say it's a bad movie. It's just not for me. I feel it's mm. too slick. I like the aesthetic the 80s in-camera or um, uh, modelled effects give. So I love the aesthetic of this film. Even though I'm looking at it and going, that is clearly a model. There's something about it that is so charming. And it is nostalgic, but not not in a retro camp kind of way. 
it's just no. that's what I grew up on and that's what I really really respond to i would much rather watch mm. you know a, a model spaceship flying about than yeah something in the marvel films mm-hmm. there's a limitation there yeah. which is which you know makes some better stories makes you creative yeah exactly yeah yeah like so he was meant to do or in the original script i think that cameron had the teeth of 1000 character in the script so he wanted a liquid terminator that you know the concept was to come back and he realized he couldn't do that yet because it was just far too technologically advanced yeah so he took it out and saved it you know he didn't just try to cram it in anyway Mm. he sort of editorialized based on what he was able to do well it's similar to um stanley kubrick he had the idea for ai in the 60s Oh, I've got a question. Why wasn't Kyle briefed to not talk about the future if the cops arrest him? Because he goes in there like, it's coming from the future. It's everything. It's going to be awful. You're all going to die. It's like, shouldn't he have been told not to do that? He should seem like completely sane if he gets caught. That's a really good point. Because <laughs> <laughs> he gives all this exposition, but it's completely, um, it's almost laughable, actually, that he just has no sense that he should just probably shut up yes i mean that happens but then there's a nice sort of almost flip in the second film where it's sarah doing the same thing oh yeah well with dr silverman yeah the the this is gonna make my career the awful awful guy who turns up in rise of the machines but no that is a very good point because you would you would think well i best make them out i i, I best make it out that i'm actually just really sane and i was a stag dude last night i lost all my clothes <laughs> well the only reason i can think is that he must be absolutely starving he's not you don't see him eating he's so stressed that there's he not an ounce of fat slightly delirious there's no fat on that body it's completely fat free i was so upset when i first watched this that's one of the main things i remember from worst what first watching this film which was um the shot of Kyle putting the trousers on and being like, oh, it's a shame. <laughs> you see Arnold's, don't you? You do see Arnold's, Flapping yeah. about in the bloody wind. Who is in control of Sarah's fate? Or her dark fate, like the sixth film, which I call Dark Fruit. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, the sitcom. I was like, is there a Sarah Connor sitcom where she eats dark fruit? Well, there was a TV series, wasn't there? There was. I did quite enjoy it, actually. The Chronicles. I like that with Lena Heaney. Lena Headey before she was San- Sensei, San- no, not Sensei, Sansa, no, not Sansa, Cersei. Bloody hell, Game of Thrones is so confusing. And Thomas Decker, lovely Thomas Decker. Lovely Thomas Decker. Who you yeah. saw in the pub in Angel and I saw her in the Apple Store. Yeah, he gets around. London, anyway. Well, um, 20 minute distances <laughs> from Angel to Regent Street. Well, there's no, what's it, where... There's no fate but the fate that we decide for ourselves. Isn't that what John Connor says? Uh, yeah, doesn't he say, like, one? there's no fate so what we decide for ourselves? Come on! Come on, we got to go! Because <laughs> <laughs> she etched it into the table, didn't she? In quite beautiful calligraphy with her knife. There's obviously some kind of wobble room. It's like Final Destination, like we discussed in the previous season, 21st Century Horror, which is like, um, there's obviously a plan. There's obviously a... Um, sort of an order that things have somehow decided to happen mm. but there is like a little bit of room to wriggle around where you could actually take control briefly so maybe the world is always going to succumb to Skynet but Sarah does have a little bit of room to move around within that 
framework. Well, there's that. Well, there's that wiggle room because, as far as I can tell, she doesn't have any control over her own life, over her own destiny. This has been handed to her, and yes, it's made her grow up really fucking quickly in the space of the film yeah. takes place over like a forty-eight hour period from the night night one through to night three, right? Yeah, it's a forty-eight hour period. She grows up, and now she's she's suddenly on this path there's a storm coming and she's driving off in that jeep towards that gorgeous matte painting yeah that gorgeous matte painting yeah matt damon's painting matt damon painting um so she has no i guess she has the... no control she's not in control of her 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 destiny is in control of what the machines do in the future which is what causes the humans to do what they do yeah and also i was thinking how awful that if everyone's fate is decided, then her her roommate Ginger was fated to be killed by a Terminator. You know, is is everyone's fate set? Well, I guess three or five million, yes, because they're the ones who are going to die. But I don't think, yeah, I I would, I don't know if the humans in the future knew about Ginger and her meathead boyfriend. Yeah, I th- so right. Okay, so with Sarah, I think that she probably could take control if she wanted to. There's no saying that she had to keep the baby. Mm. Um, you know, it's kind of like what what's at risk if she decides to terminate her pregnancy. Um, so if she wanted, she could change it if she wanted to. But it's almost like she has bought into this mythology of her own life. And that's why she keeps the baby as far as we know, or we find out she does. And um, kind of almost accepts that this is what is going to happen. Well, this is going to be one of my questions. Does Sarah develop Stockholm Syndrome? Mm. She immediately empathises with Reese, even though, you know, he's almost stalking her for the first part of seeing her. But as soon as mm. as soon as they're in the car, in the club, and then in the car, and he's saving Reese is saving her from the Terminator. She she begins very quickly to empathise with him. She's joking with him about the shopping items. She's bandaging up his head and his arm or whatever. She sleeps with him. She loves him. Mm. She's mm-hmm. going to have his baby, and this is in a forty eight hour period. It's not a healthy mental state. It's that feeling of like a holiday romance, isn't it? It's where you get swept off your feet when when you're in a, you know, a, by a man from a the future environment, by a man from the future, a very attractive man from the future. Mm. Maybe she has Stockholm syndrome. I don't know, but she definitely buys into it wholesale and actually, and kind of plays her part. That he tells her what her part is, and she plays it. And the, obviously, the twist is that he's the one who's the father, but that's kind of almost neither here nor there. Who does he think he is? He he absolutely adores John. And then he's banging his mum. <laughs> is there a queer reading there yeah. between Reese and John? Sarah goes, Tell me about tell me about my son. And Reese goes, He's ha- he he's about my height. He has your eyes. I trust him. He's got strength. <laughs> he's definitely our son. <laughs> I'd die for John Connor. Mm, but that's more of like a military brotherhood thing. I didn't really read anything queer into that i saw it more as just that's his um his savior in the future basically he's got the dreamiest eyes his eyes are just like yours how weird 
He's, he's as tall as I am. Mm. He kisses just like you. But maybe he did know. <laughs> maybe he did know that he's John's father. Maybe he kind of pieces that together. Well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask that. Does does he know? Does does John know when he sends yeah. Kyle back? It's that's heavily implied. I think. Yeah, I think so. So we have to assume this has all happened before. Yeah. Well, it's like if the Terminator has seen Sarah, mm. sort of in this story. Then, then does the that information immediately? Yeah, does it immediately go to the future? But the, I mean, that's the problem with timey wimey paradox films. Yeah. Is this? We might be seeing this for the first time, but is this the first time this has happened? Because yeah. in order for yeah, that's true. Because in order for John to be born, Kyle has to be sent back, right? Yeah. And if John's already born when he sends Kyle back, that means Kyle's already been sent back for John to be born. Mm. in order to send Kyle back so he can be born. (laughs) I don't like it. Whenever I think of time travel, I just think of Doc Brown's diagram in Back to the Future 2, which he doesn't explain in the first one, does he? He doesn't... It's only in the second one we get that, don't we? Yeah, because Marty didn't do anything in the first film that could radically Mm. alter the timeline. Yeah. It's only when he gets... I still don't understand. I mean, he actually does in the first film. He does... He does alter the timeline a little bit because his parents are not fuck-ups. They're quite happy and, yeah. and Biff is not the bully anymore. He is, he's like washing there. Well, he's just, he's there, he's waxing the car, isn't he? Yeah. Wax on, wax off. If Reese had come back from the future, from the future, money, <laughs> and Sarah had taken an immediate dislike. It's your kids! It's your kids. Sarah's got to be talking about your kids. If Sarah had taken an immediate disliking to Reese and not slept with him, what's the moral quandary here? How does Reese ensure that Sarah is impregnated with the leader of the resistance? Um, I don't know. I guess we don't know that he definitely was John's father. It could have been... He Somebody was. Else. Maybe he is. He's John's father. Otherwise, we've just <laughs> se- otherwise we've just seen the sex scene for no reason. It's not a very well shot one. It's very, it's very, you know, head and shoulders. <laughs> it's very safe. Yeah, head right? and shoulders. It's just head and shoulders. He is John's father. Otherwise, why would he have the picture? Why would it be all be I alluding to? So, if he had yeah. come back, is it morally right for him to? forcibly impregnate Sarah for the sake of the human race, for the sake of the humans in the future. That's that's a moral... No, because he should have told her. If he knew that's what he was doing, he should have said to her, do you mind? <laughs> Is it all right if we do this? Are you, are you um, allowing this to happen? <laughs> well, in a post-Me Too environment, he would have to get consent. But yes. as an 80s film, and as a real life, if this was real life... Is it morally acceptable for him to get her impregnated in any way he can? Because it is important for the the survival of the human race against the machines in however many years' time, 40, 50 years' Mm. time. That's the moral question that this film throws up and then never answers. The what if. What if Sarah never liked Reese? What if she wasn't? thirsty as and he wasn't thirsty because he's always loved her hasn't he yeah that's why i think this is the most 
this is Cameron at his most successfully romantic because obviously his other films have been celebrated for their romantic attributes, like especially Titanic, obviously, but definitely Avatar. But I think Terminator is hugely romantic. If you take away the the question of if Kyle knew that he was impregnating her and blah, you know, all that kind of consent stuff, mm. and you just view it as a romance where he didn't know that he was just following his heart, um, not kind of following a directive from John necessarily, mm. that I just love... I, I think it's really romantic the way that he's been obsessed with this photo. He sort of loved her before he met her. He has no idea that when the photo was taken, she was thinking of him. Mm. Um, and it's just got such a lovely, resonant romance, understated romance to it. Or, so that's why I don't really want to think too much about <laughs> if Kyle sort of um, orchestrated everything. If he or- In what way? If he orchestrated what? Getting her pregnant, basically. Because that's just so insidious and so dark and not very nice but what, and illegal. Well, I don't know if the law covers time travel. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't read the books on that one. But he can't know. He can't know because when he um, tells her that he loves her, he gets really angry at himself and says, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Um you know, he goes over to the table with all the bombs yeah. and says, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. And she's the one and who makes he, the move. And then he starts very violently stuffing, the stuffing them in the back <laughs> when two minutes ago he's told her to be really careful with them. I know. That's how angry he if is anything, when he blow them up. If anything, Carice is just wildly inconsistent in his behaviour. Yeah. Very inconsistent. Yeah, he is. Why don't they know more about the Terminator's plan? Why don't they know where and when the Terminator is going to be. Not just 1984, LA, whatever day it is, but his plan of where he's going to be to the minute. The only explanation for that would be if this was the first time it had ever happened. But it has to be not the first time because John is alive in the future and he's only alive Mm. because Carl Reese was sent back to impregnate his mother to make him. Yeah, That's... I mean, that's the paradox floor at the the centre of this film that is brushed over very quickly. It's never really addressed. Can you just see the blank expression on my face? It's always always a case of maybe Jim Cameron thinking someone's going to look at it and he goes, no, 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 look over here, look over here, I'm going to do a film with a ship. Yeah. I've got blue people. (laughs) Yeah, I think that it doesn't bear up to uh, time travel because everything to do with time travel is theoretical because clearly mm. we haven't done it um, we know of. it's all theoretical so i couldn't possibly go into that because it's just too too much for my poor brain are they already controlled by the machines to some degree before judgment day in this version of the story in, yeah. term, in the terminator in the terminator are they controlled in what in, like it's enslaved well ginger is always playing her walkman even in bed which i think is fucking rude the the telephone doesn't work when sarah needs help you know it's already a Mm. on the cusp of the internet in america at least so the machines have already Mm. sort of crept their way into into their lives but Mm. i think at the same time the machines have helped sarah at points in this story she learns about the other killings 
because the TV is on in the bar. Mm. But the bar is a place for for, for socialising, and yet there's a TV with on and the volume is on, which yeah. is is odd. It's like the machines are interrupting the natural flow of human, you know, interactivity. The answer machine mm. portrays her safety. The the Terminator yeah. thinks he's just killed Sarah, and then she's on the the answer phone basically hi saying sarah. hi sarah yeah it's sarah <laughs> you know the one you're trying to kill yeah it's your cousin marvin berry <laughs> why didn't she just say hi it's me yeah that would have saved her life good point well, i mean she did get safe um so i wonder are we more out of control of our own lives are the machines more in control of us now in 2022 i think that we absolutely have We've got them everywhere. You know, I'm just looking around my room now. I've got this laptop. I've got my iPad and I've got my phone. And I live in a fortress, so you can't seal any of them just in case you're thinking about it. Um, and there's cables, you know, there's iPhone cables everywhere. You know, we're never more than at most, I would say, a couple of meters away from something technological. And you're wearing so a Bluetooth that, headset. You're talking on the microphone. You're using the phone headset. to talk to me now. I can see my Mac, yeah. my phone, my TV, uh, my Apple TV. You've got a webcam behind you, maybe? Uh, on, the, on your shelf? What's that? Oh, no, I've got a bunch of cameras on the shelf behind there. But some oh, of them so are analog. Cameras around some you of them are analog. I've got digital oh. cameras in the cupboard. So there's machines. But we rely so heavily on being connected mm. on the internet. It's the first thing I look at when I wake up. It's the last thing I'm looking at before I go to bed. It's ridiculous. If I wanted to oh, yeah. if I wanted to take myself completely offline, it's virtually impossible. How would I talk to anyone? <laughs> yeah. I talk to a lot of people through Instagram. How would I email anyone? How would I do anything? Well, that's why this film still is, you know, that's why this one and the second one are still so... Um, so beloved because they're just still relevant they're still preying on fears that we have and you know technology is only getting smaller and more advanced mm. so it's kind of if you're a paranoid kind of person and it, definitely if you're like a conspiracy theorist you're going to be fearing this happening pretty much any day now <laughs> i've got friends who put a plaster or a, a sticky thing over yeah. the, the webcam even when yeah. they're not i mean especially when they're not using it Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I think and it makes should. me think I should Definitely. do that because you know I've been I've been reading and a lot about Edward Snowden and I've been watching a lot of stuff with Edward Snowden and he absolutely says they can they can look drop in any time look and they don't even need to turn the camera on you would never know it's happening it's scary no it's really scary really freaky and that's why they get all that spam now that says um, I've seen you on your webcam pay me some money and it's like. <laughs> um, I don't think so, actually. What have you watched me do? Eat biscuits? Oh, yeah, no. I know. Like sitting here looking really bored trying to write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. The, the, the life of a writer. Yeah, I really want people to be... <laughs> I, know. I really want people not it's to riveting. know about that. But anyway, talking about the life of a writer, what is it about the Terminator that leads you to the shadow glass? What's, how do we connect the dots between the Terminator and the Shadow Glass? Out on March 22nd from Titan Books. Yeah, thank you for that. I can see, I can definitely see why it would be strange for us to talk about the Terminator when, when I introduced the Shadow Glass, it was very much sort of a fantasy book. But there are definitely elements from um, the Terminator that have influenced me. 
And I really wish I could remember where I heard this. It may have been on a commentary, perhaps on the T2 commentary, but I just really have a vivid memory of James Cameron talking about how he uses exposition, Mm. sort of specifically in the Terminator films. And what he does is he sort of hides it within action. Mm. So when we finally get Kyle and Sarah together and they're talking about why any of this is actually happening, it's a huge, huge info dump. But we we need it as an audience and the characters need it in order for the story to progress. So it has to happen. And instead of them just sitting in a coffee shop having a coffee and him explaining shit to her in a really boring kind of way, they do it in and around two car chases with a huge level of threat. It's called attacking with your exposition. Ah, is that what it's called? Yeah, I've heard it called attack with your exposition. Don't just tell don't mm. just have a character tell some other character willy nilly. Have it have them yeah. use it in a kind of aggressive sense. In the Terminator, they're arguing. She's wanting out. Yeah. She's not wanting to listen. And he's like, Listen to me. I'm from the future. It will not stop. It doesn't eat. Yeah. It doesn't rest. Which is the opposite of me. <laughs> <laughs> So that's kind of, that's really impacted me in terms of when I'm thinking about if a scene isn't working or how to convey a certain piece of information, I'm like, can I do it in action? And it's difficult, but also it's infinitely more fun to write and Mm. sort of hugely more fun to read. Um, And also because James Cameron is such a great visual storyteller, he's basically a perfect visual storyteller, I think. I'm also constantly trying to find ways to tell a story visually, even though it's a book and the visuals are imagined by the reader. I don't think that diminishes their power. In fact, I think it makes visuals even more important. Um, So I'm always thinking about ways to do that. There are a couple of other things as well, like neon light. Obviously, neon light is like whenever you think of the 80s you think of neon Mm. and that's prevalent in the terminator and because i wanted shadow class to tap into that feeling of the 80s even though it's a contemporary story um i wanted to try to mention in places a neon kind of light so there's like there's a character who has neon blue eyes um and there's a a sequence where sort of like something quite mystical is happening and I kind of describe this neon pink and green light occurring Um, and that actually comes from Terminator and also comes from another film that we'll be discussing later in the series Mm. Um, and finally the biggest link between Terminator and the Shadow Glass is the name Corman uh, because James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd both worked for Roger Corman, who was the infamous sort of B-movie producer. And when I was sort of searching around for a, a surname to give Bob and Jack in the book, Corman just kind of jumped out and I was like, oh, that's a bit silly, but, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just going to go with it. And once once I'd written it, it just didn't go away. It just, mm. it seemed, you know, if, film people read the book they'll they'll notice it and if other people don't know the name that's fine as well um you know and it's just i always kind of thought maybe i'll change it but then i just didn't and now i can't think of any other name for them so thank you very much james cameron for giving me roger corman
That was The Terminator, directed by James Cameron. Joshua, give us a clue as to what's coming up in the next episode. Oh, in the next episode, we are going to be dodging some asteroids. Oh, yeah, we are. (laughs) We are indeed. We are indeed. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast so you don't miss that episode. And we're on Twitter at TornStubsPod. Are you a child of the 80s? Are you a fan of The Terminator? Um, Come and let us know what you think. Don't forget to buy The Shadow Glass. It's out on March 22nd from all good bookstores, both online and in the real world. We are off for a good old boogie at Tech Noir. Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Cut. Cut.